I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, NHS doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part two of a special two-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Professor Sir Simon Wesley, Regis Chair of Psychiatry at King's College London and President of the Royal Society of Medicine and former head of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Last week, we spoke about the effects of COVID on the brain and mental health. This week, we're discussing how it is affecting people with pre-existing mental health conditions and how it is affecting our society as a whole. So, Simon, I suppose the, the, the other massive thing for with COVID has been people with underlying mental health problems. Yeah. And the kind of extraordinary pressures and kind of difficulties that people, everybody, regardless of, of whether or not you have any mental health problems, the, you know, the, those kind of stresses and strains that we've all found ourselves under. Sure. How has it affected those who've already got a mental illness, do you think? Because I've noticed, well, I've noticed up amongst my own patients, which I've thought is quite unusual, and they've kind of fallen into two groups. But I was wondering from a, from a you know, kind of world-renowned psychiatrist, what is, <laughs> what, what is your point of view? <laughs> Very funny. I do have a few patients. I don't have that many anymore, but um, two or three of my patients have fallen ill as well, who I've known for 20 years. I've definitely got ill. I mean, even when this started, when this, I mean, back in the beginning of March, which seems like another kind of geological epoch away, doesn't it? We did a review for The Lancet looking at the impact of quarantine. So that's not the illness. That's the measures that we yeah. take to control yeah. the illness yeah. on, um, from, from previous uh, SARS and MERS and, and Ebola. And sh- showed that if you, I think, I, I forgot the number of studies we looked at, 26, 27, all bar one found higher rates of psychiatric disorder from the quarantine. So the, mm. the um, treatment, as it were, that we do to control the epidemic has itself got side effects. All interventions always have side effects. And sometimes they were quite profound. And that's not even the illness. That's not Ebola or SARS. That's quarantine. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then you look at the outcomes of Ebola and SARS. And uh, now early COVID studies are just starting to appear, but they're quite early. Um, but the longer term SARS ones, surprise, surprise. Yes, you find that people develop um, uh, illnesses for some time. And you find, without exception, those who previously had mental disorders are more at risk um, without any shadow of doubt uh, they are and in various ways. But we are not, I mean, we're not seeing that so much because everything's shut down. I mean, if you just look at A&E figures for deliberate self-harm and you know that normally that's where we get the best measures of deliberate self-harm, it looks as if the rate of deliberate self-harm has gone down by 50%. Now, I don't think we think that's the case. This is exactly my point, because I would have thought in a time like this, if that is if self-harming is your coping mechanism, you're going to probably have to rely, you know, we've all had to rely on coping mechanisms even more. So surely when I was seeing all this stuff about particularly self-harm, I was thinking it doesn't, to me, it doesn't quite make sense. Where are all those people? Well, if we, again, the earliest data from like the UCL study and another population measuring everyone shows that there has been no drop in deliberate self-harm. And to be fair, there hasn't been a rise as far as we can see, but a massive drop in presentation. And of course, we've seen that in heart attacks. You know, it looks like the rate of heart attacks is halved. Well, I mean, you know, how can that have happened? It means that and cancer. Yeah. Um, so people with severe illnesses whether they be physical or mental, are reluctant to seek help, reluctant to go to GP, reluctant to go to hospital because they're frightened that hospitals are a source of infection, and that's not actually untrue. Um, So 
in a way, there's a kind of calm before the storm. There are, and then there are some of our patients with severe psychotic. We know that COVID is causing them to relapse. We know that it's, they're bringing it into delusional systems, but we can't really go and see them. And, you know, we've got patients who we can talk to on, on apps and, and, and um, you know, like we are now. We've got plenty of patients who we can't. And um, there's tremendous worry. And then we've got children. My son is a social worker, child protection social worker, can't get access to see children, and, and particularly the most vulnerable at risk of maltreatment. Is, you know, they need to be at school. They're much safer at school than at home. Can't get to them. So there's a lot going on that is not going to be very pleasant, uh, I'm afraid. Because it's something I feel quite strongly about having seen so many of my patients, because I, I noticed at the beginning there was a, a cohort suddenly kind of, kind of, I don't know, found this sort of resolve almost or this, you know, kind of real sort of batten down and were like, no, 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 you know, you go off and do, the, you know, there's, there's other people worse off than me. And I did keep on saying to them, well, actually, it's not top Trump's game here. It's not, you know, COVID beats no. or, you know, schizophrenia. It doesn't work like that. But there was certainly a sense for a good couple of weeks of like, no, 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 I'm just going to keep going and keep my head down and so on. It was a bit sort of, you know, a bit like we used to say, sort of that sort of blip. Well, but I found... I, I would, well, I mean, I would say also, I mean, I can understand why people say that. And in a way, that's also admirable. We were all told to save yeah. the NHS, you know, and people responded. Yeah. And it would have been too complicated to save the NHS. But don't forget, you know, if you do get central chest pain or you do start to hear voices, yeah. do, then please come and see us. Yeah. But... To keep the message simple, which was what they had to do, um, I'm afraid many people did think, well, there are people worse off than me. Exactly. And And I kept on sort of... It's altruistic. Of course, it was actually, it was really sweet. It was really interesting Mm. to see which patients adopted that that stance. Mm. And we've subsequently tried to use it as a really positive thing for them to say, do you remember how you did have this reserve you didn't think you Mm. did have? But what I've noticed now is as the weeks have gone on, I think more and more and more patients are finding it hard. One described it to me the other week as I feel like I'm having to hold my breath, which I'm doing, but at some point I'm going to drown. And yeah. and that and I suppose I, I, my, one of my big concerns is that that's what's been happening across the NHS in all different areas, particularly mental health. That they've they've kind of just cut whole services have just seemed to have like you know suspended or paused. Yeah. And it's I mean it's really extraordinary and and. That doesn't just because a service closes down doesn't mean that the people that need that service aren't there. I, I don't think it's. I mean, I don't think services have closed down. Um, they're just much harder. It's much harder. I mean, we had a, a mental health crisis recently. Uh, of, of one of, of, of you know nothing to do with my job. It was it was a friend, and and actually the system worked actually really well. I mean, GP came and somebody was detained and got urgent treatment. And it's got better. So it was, but it was ser- very serious. And so the system does, is still there. I mean, but obviously, it's been much harder. And I've been trying to sort of impress on everybody, it's still there. I yeah. think it's definitely still there for acute crises. So yeah. like the teams are there, you know, A&E section 137, mm. which is where you go when you're um, having a really distressing time and the police yeah. are up. Um, so those kind of um, facilities have remained open entirely. Yes. Although they've seen a drop in people attending them. I suppose it's more things like psychological therapies yeah. have, have been, I think they're now trying to start by doing a, a Skype type. Uh, yes, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, but yeah. I know there's a big period where there just seemed to be nothing. Um, I, I think that's right. I mean, and in fact, what's remarkable, and I think when the history of this is written, is there'll be quite a lot of finger pointing in various directions. But actually, in terms of the, the rapid change in services, 
uh, and the way in which, for example, general practice digitalized more in four weeks than it's done in 20 years, etc., will be seen as, as something really very admirable. And it, it isn't just that we built those uh, nightingales, which in fact we haven't used, but nobody knew that. And, and the fact that we did do that is truly remarkable. And lots of other changes have happened in the system. Some, some of them will stick, actually, and that's good. And the other remarkable thing is that all the things that we thought we needed, you know, all the regulation and inspections, et cetera, which have all gone to the wall for the last six months. And yet I think some of the quality of the medicine has probably never been better. Talking to some of our junior doctors, they say they've never had such good supervision, which is, you know, they say, some of them say, you know, this has been challenging and tiring, but it's also been a remarkably um, satisfying time. You know, we're doing great medicine. We've never had the consultants so often. We're all in teams again. We've been supported. And I'm not making this up. You know, lots of people are saying it, it, they, they remind me of soldiers coming back from deployments. And they say, yeah, yeah, it was tough. And, you know, yeah, sleep is mentioned a lot. Um, but, yeah, actually, I'm glad I did it. I think I'm a better doctor now. I can't think what will scare me ever again. Yeah. So there's a lot of other experiences happening um, that I hope we don't lose. Maybe we didn't need all that paperwork. Maybe we didn't need all those appraisals and all the That's inspections. Amazing. What I love now is yeah. everyone's socially distanced. Half of it's like done over the internet and people's connections are always breaking. So it's always yeah. just like, quick, we're all here, we've all got a connection. Quick, what is there to say? You do it in five minutes. And these are literally meetings that used to take kind of an hour and a half sometimes. Yeah, yes, that's all true. 10 or 15 minutes. Um, it, I mean, it's been a real breath of fresh air. And we've been pushing the paperwork. We've, been, we, we've got lots of things that have happened much faster. And now there's no reason why we need to go back to some of those old yeah. ways. And of course, the wicked thing about COVID is that it, um, it interferes with the, at the very time we most need our social intimacy, our friends, our colleagues, our leaders, uh, our bosses to, you know, talk to us and, and interact. It and what we have to do because of the virus absolutely destroys that. Social distancing is appalling for mental health because it increases the need for support and decreases the availability of it. And then people who talk about, you know, a new norm, oh God, I hate that word, Max. I really hate it. I hope they don't mean that we'll go into a world of social distancing because that would be chronically bad for mental health. I can't yeah. think of anything worse. I mean, because I, I, I had it, right at the beginning oh, okay um, and and uh, and i was sent home from work annoyingly um i'd gone in thinking i was okay and uh and i just could not stop coughing um and i had a fever and i was then sort of escorted off the hospital grounds uh with someone with a like a, a wet wipe behind me cleaning everything i'd touched um and so i then had to spend i had to spend 14 days at home and i mean I've, i don't have any mental health problems i've never had any mental health problems particularly um but my goodness, after even just a few days, it was quite difficult being with, mm. just with yourself. And all the usual things of like, oh, I'll pop out for a walk. Oh, no, I can't. Oh, I'll go and do it. Oh, no, I can't. And actually, the, one of the tiny things that really made things a massive difference for me was uh, a colleague um, sent me around every evening, sent me around a cooked meal with like a little cocktail, with like all sorts of, you know, little desserts, all sorts of things like this. And I remember thinking, God, like this is it's a lovely gesture. But the reason I'm holding on to this so much is because mm. actually this is my, apart from, you know, Skype or something, which you realize isn't the same, it's, it's the only kind of moment of contact 
mm. with people um, in the outside world, even though it might be from a very socially distanced away. And I realised how profoundly important that was. And it might be that those who are not familiar with the world of mental distress and, and our patients, you know, that we see are the most vulnerable, the most difficult to have social networks, the most isolated, the most stigmatized, the most lonely. It may give the rest of the population just a fraction of an insight to what that must be like for month after month, year after year, and then realize just how important our social networks are. Yeah. Another kind of ironic thing, Max, I can't remember who it was, maybe 18 months ago, I was talking to you about the so-called evils of social media and how that was affecting the mental health of young people. And I think I was being a little bit skeptical and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure it's probably a zero-sum game. Now, of course, all we hear is how wonderful social media has been in helping young people to stay connected and older people and supplying endlessly funny videos. And, and so I think we now have a better perspective. Social media is a kind of, it, it's a message. And it's the medium, not the message. And that's an interesting change, how now, how glad we are. And imagine what a pandemic would be like if we didn't have it. I know, I think, you know, just 10 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago, it would have been horrific, really yeah. bad. And it also kind of made me really appreciate the, you know, my friends and family much more mm. um, when you can't see them in a way. And I really hope that's something that people... Um, and, and that's pay. definitely... If you look at the early population surveys, the good ones that don't just look at the bad, but look at the good, there's no question. A lot of people, excellent stuff from China, um, the importance of family being reasserted, the importance of communication, uh, the importance of, of um, perhaps not having to work quite so hard as we all used to do, um, although it's not the case for everyone, for sure. But yeah, no, there's very positive things coming as well. And Chinese social media, I was reading a, a preprint recently, was remarkable that analysis of it showed even at the height of the crisis, positive comments out, out, outweighed negative comments. Mm -hmm. And so people were definitely, you know, seeing the, the good side, just like, as I mentioned, as young doctors I was talking to who were stressed and under pressure, but also were responding to it. And many did say, this has been, you know, something that I'm really glad I did. So it's going to be a, we're going to have a much more rounded picture, but we are definitely, though, I mean, I, we are going to see more mental health problems. We're going to have to find innovative ways of doing that. We can't just counsel our way out of this problem. But the, probably the best thing still is to, you know, get, get, get a, the best thing sooner or later is to start to make the choices to allow people to um, find their own ways of coping and which will almost certainly involve uh, social interaction because that's always been how humanity is that's what we do it's what makes us different simon thank you very very much for your time it's a so pleasure we're... max that's all we've got time for if you want more from simon you can find him at wesley s on twitter and you can find us on spotify apple and google whilst you're there please leave us a review and don't forget to sign up for the daily mail plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk.